Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday the 20th of February. It's the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. I'm Harry McGee. Later, I will be talking to Marissa McGlitchy, author of a fascinating new book on Republican dissidents. But first, I'm joined by my colleagues, Vic Kelly and Jennifer Bray, to cast a cold eye on this week's big political stories. And the drive for five, and should the freedom of Foxroth be removed from Russell Carl Kelly. Sorry, I'm reading Maliki Clerkin's script there. We're talking about far more interesting topics uh, this morning. I suppose it's Wednesday, and if it's Wednesday, it has to be the National Children's Hospital. And Jennifer, you've been our kind of lead expert on that in the past week. Uh, there is a confidence vote in Simon Harris. He should know his fate uh, shortly before tea time uh, this afternoon. Have there, be, have there been any more twists in the tale? And what do you think are his prospects for survival? Um, I think the vote, as as Fiak pointed out in Political Digest earlier in the week, it's, it's a foregone conclusion in that the government has the numbers with Fianna Fáil abstaining, though they are tighter than maybe they would like. Mm. Uh, with their own, I think it's... Um, so with their own, they need a majority of 57, they have 49, and then with the Independent Alliance, Catherine Zappone, Sean Canney, Noel Grealish and Michael Lowry, that, that should get them over That'd the line. That up to 57. That's, depend, that's contingent on Noel Grealish supporting them rather than abstaining. Exactly, I, yeah. I think everybody else is going to vote against them. I think Matty McGrath, the Healy Rays, yeah. uh, have, there's no love lost between them mm. and Simon Harris. Yeah. Um, I think Peter Fitzpatrick as well, because of the whole abortion thing and Simon Harris, they had a spectacular falling out. Uh, he might abstain or he might vote against as well. So they've no guarantee. They've no guarantee of that. Of his vote either. Someone remarked to me yesterday that the government was one bad hangover away from losing uh, the confidence. Like if one person doesn't turn up, basically. Um, so, but but it's looking like a he'll he'll muddle through. But there are still two big questions that we talked about the last time we were in, which are not resolved yet, and they they are basically the issue of the cost. What will this project actually cost in the end? Um, and the second is the capital what capital projects are being quote? We still don't have answers to those two questions. And until those two questions are answered, it's going to continue to be a major political controversy. Yeah, and I mean, it kind of does uh, throw a cloud over the whole capital programme. When you start interrogating these things, Fiat, and look at the way that they actually arrive at their estimates. Mm. I mean, I'm not saying it's exactly the back of an envelope. Mm. It's actually the back of a cigarette packet. Yeah, they still had one some, in some cases, isn't it's okay. it? So there's sometimes, I, I'd imagine, because this project is such a big key infrastructure project there's a I suppose a kind of an anxiousness on behalf of the politicians to announce it it's good news they want to be seen to be announcing it and the first question that arises when they announce something is how much it's going to cost so you have to put a figure on it and then reality catches up with that figure that they've probably preemptively given like if they were to be completely uh, if they were to follow the letter on this they would say look we're going to build a national children's hospital our indicative cost is this but we can't rule out the fact that it may rise and Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, but that's not the way politics works. They want to say this is the budget we're going to stick to it absolutely, and that's the way it's going to happen. So that's I think the flaw with how these type of projects are announced by the political system. There's a necessity to do them to announce good news, but then the realities of a construction project catches up with them. Now I think Pat was pointing out on Saturday that 
in situations where the government has practice in these type of projects, such as the roads network, they've got quite good. Mm. The system has got quite good at keeping it between the ditches, to, so to speak, to keeping the costs in line with what is expected. But this is so big. It's a good idea to keep the road in between the ditches it, too. Exactly, it? and certainly it is. <laughs> but uh, it is, this is so big and... It, nothing on this scale has been done before that there was no template to follow. Yeah. So they've been kind of caught on that one. I did a, a technical and quite boring piece a couple of weeks ago that I'm sure everybody read, but a couple of things kind of jumped out uh, of it. And first of all, um, w- um, I, I talked to an academic from DCU um, and he was saying that the, the department that wants the project is the department of the evaluation at the start. And they want the project. So they try to, you know, they say we can do it for... X amount of money when the reality is that that, that X amount of money isn't true. Mm. And he said the other thing that they don't build into into any of these projects is risk. Things happen. You know, you find a snail on a motorway yeah. that's in, endangered or protesters jump up trees on the Glen of the Downs. or you fi- stop it for a period of time, costs go up. Yeah, and I mean, the Children's Hospital is a very good uh, e- example of that. I mean, one of the things that they did in 2014 uh, in St. James's when they were bidding for it is they said that decanting, i.e. clearing the site, and it's a very tight mm. site, would be done in six months and the whole hospital would cost, at a maximum, mm. 300 million. Mm. And both of those were like so far removed mm. from reality. When they were decanting, there was a protected church there mm. that they had to remove brick mm. by brick. And it took an awful long time mm. and cost a, a lot more money. Um, to use the JA phrase, are there learnings that the government can take from this? Well, I think they will probably be a bit more anxious about, we've seen the, the controversy over... Veronica's claim about low-balling contractors they'd probably be a bit more assiduous in examining tenders as they come in like certain alarm signs could go off for example if people are tendering at a price that maybe seem to be much less than is practical um, but I think this story I don't think it's quite finished yet you know well, we have the motion of no confidence this evening and traditionally that puts a tin hat and everybody moves on I think this is a lingering story it's going to be hanging around until the ribbon is cut on this project. There's always there's going to be an overspend in some area. Something is going to go awry. There's going to be something that falls off the plan. So I think this children's hospital, and speaking to people in Fianna Fáil who have taken some criticism in the last week for not supporting this motion, and they obviously say, look, our conflict supply agreement means we can't. They say, well, we're quite content with the position we've taken because we think this is going to run and run, and we're just going to sit here and let them stew in their own juices on this project. And they criticise Sinn Féin for being precipitative in tabling this motion. So I think... There's a way to go on this yet, yeah. both politically and until the ribbon is cut. Yeah, well, Brendan Holland was maybe a little bit right yesterday when he said that Brexit has given Fianna, Fianna Fáil a kind of a bit of a fig leaf in terms of its stance on this because it's criticising one side of its mouth and then supporting another other side. And as you've been reporting and we all have been reporting, uh, that's become a more difficult position uh, for confidence and supply uh, for Fianna Fáil to, to maintain mm. as time goes on. Uh, Jennifer, um, a couple of weeks ago we had a podcast and I was kind of saying, well, not too much to see here, but there was actually quite a lot more to be seen. And uh, Simon Harris's position from a couple of weeks ago has incrementally slipped as he, ha- as he has to admit that he had more knowledge at his disposal uh, than he should have had. He's going to escape, it looks like, by the skin of his teeth tonight. But is it over for Simon Harris? Is there something else that might uh, arise uh, for him in the next couple of weeks? Do you think that once the vote happens this evening, this crisis will be put to bed? Absolutely not, because there is this issue of from next July on, or from this July onwards even, um, the any inflation above 4% in the construction industry, uh, basically the state will have to pay for that above that level. That is what's been built into the contract. So the price of this hospital will go up. 
And the government have been really vague about what they know, what figures they've been given, preliminary figures, and we don't really know what that price will be. But when that figure comes out, that will be a political controversy in and of itself. When we get more details about where the money is coming from in the Department of Health, this saving uh, of 50 million or t- uh, 35 million in terms of capital projects, they've provided absolutely no clarity. When we find out exactly where that money is coming from, that too will be a political controversy. So he's not out of the woods. Okay. When we used to use the word omnibus, we used to be referring to the, the bumper editions of Coronation Street and EastEnders over the course Sunday of the weekend. Sunday afternoons must have been so exciting, Harry, back in the day. <laughs> but it's even more exciting now because <laughs> omnibus is now applied to the Brexit legislation that's going to be published on Friday. And you're reporting this morning uh, saying that the government essentially have two weeks uh, left uh, to plan for those emergency uh, contingency measures. It's a little bit like uh, uh, the follies that we saw in the 19th century, these very rich landowners building these huge monuments in the middle of fields just because they could. This is a huge bill, 15 sections, uh, that's going to take essentially a month to debate through the, through, through the dole, but might, might never be used. Yeah, there's a bit of that to it. Like Simon Coveney last week um, sounded incredibly frustrated when he talked about the whole process although he, he was blaming the British side uh, being brought up to the precipice of no deal. And he said the, the, our government is spending hundreds of millions of euro on this preparation, which may not, and I think the likely scenario is, will not come to pass. But what else are they supposed to do? The country has to be prepared for a no deal exit. There is still a risk that it could happen and the government would not be performing its duties adequately if it wasn't doing what it's doing now. Arguably, some decisions should have been made before this, like, for example, preparing industry that will be seriously affected by a no-deal Brexit, such as the beef industry. There is no doubt, nobody disagrees that if there is a no-deal Brexit and high tariffs are put on beef imports and food imports in general into the UK, that the beef industry will be pretty hard hit. Perhaps moves should have been taken before this to uh, to assist that sector. But what we're seeing now is that the Cabinet was told yesterday by Martin Fraser Secretary of the government that there will be a series of cabinet meetings in a fortnight's time at which those decisions will have to be made. Which industry we're helping out, what state aid supports we're going to apply for and I think that we are going to see this frenzy of activity for the duration of March punctuated by the Paddy's Day trips when ministers will go abroad but the, the March will be solely dedicated in terms of cabinet time and a raucous time for preparing for something as you say Harry that might not happen. Okay, and what's the fake Kelly Moodometer telling him at the moment? About? About Brexit. <laughs> I don't know. I speak, there was some positive noises coming out of London yesterday about this EU Middle East summit in Sharm el-Sheikh at the weekend that, oh, a deal may be struck at a desert. And vibes from Dublin were very much, no, that is totally off kilter, that there is still a huge gap between what the British government is asking for in terms of they're still talking about, as far as I understand, unilateral exit clauses from the backstop, um, time limits on the backstop, despite repeated insistence from the EU side, that is not a runner. So I think the most, uh, one interpretation was put to me last night is that someone in Dublin said, look, it may be the case that Theresa May is asking for everything so she can go back to the parliament and say, I asked for this, didn't get it, I asked for this, didn't get it, asked for this, didn't get that, and this is my deal and you're going to have to vote for it. So most people are assuming that there will be some sort of an extension, but an extension to what? Will there have to be a shape of Brexit emerging by this meaningful vote at the end of the month in the House of Commons and then the extension will be to technically implement that. So uh, it, it, there's no kind of pres- there's no real movement in the last few weeks and there is some suggestion that this evening when Theresa May meets Jean-Claude Juncker that there will be some sort of legal interpretation on the backstop table by her Attorney General that could get them out of the woods. But we're no closer and we haven't moved any inch really in the last three or four weeks. 
Okay, well, Jennifer, a, a sober and serious um, Irish Times political correspondent like yourself sometimes despairs at the kind of the puerile nature and infantile uh, ranting that we hear in the Doyle. But then you look across the water at Westminster and say, God, thank God we don't have any uh, of that. Um, it just seems to be going even crazier now than it has been with uh, the Labour Party imploding. Uh, an eighth uh, person has uh, upped uh, sticks and left the Labour Party this morning and uh, they still seem to be unable uh, to find anything uh, that amounts to a credible thing. I know that Fiuk was saying that there is a little bit of buoyancy there because of Anthony Grieve and what he's looking at, but uh, I'll, I'll believe that when I actually see it. I think the set well as of yesterday, seven as of today, eight. Um, those seven MPs, when they were announcing their resignation, the majority of them all made the point that the British political system is by and large broken, and that's I guess part of the reason why they've resigned. When they resigned their positions, they gave various reasons, such as this issue with anti-Semitism in the party, bullying, and thirdly Brexit. And the feeling is that these MPs who have splintered off per se that they would have been MPs who were pushing for a second referendum. They would have thought maybe by now that Jeremy Corbyn would have brought the Labour Party closer towards that second referendum. And it was something that the party sort of endorsed at one of its most recent conferences. Uh, Instead, it looks like he's going nowhere near that. He's kind of taking this, um, you know, this kind of do-nothing approach, if you will, um, sort of constructive ambiguity. So that's sort of where we're at over there at the moment. I mean, it'll be really interesting to see what happens with this group. I mean, if you see around 30 or 40 MPs coming over to their group, what that could do in the end is to splinter the left, which could make it easier for the Conservatives. What that means in terms of what kind of Brexit we end up with is totally unclear. But those MPs themselves, their positions as in their seats at a granular level would appear to be safe. So absolutely unclear you know, where this will go. And also, they say they're going to sit as independent MPs and they haven't actually established a political party yet, but they will. But there is precedent for this, obviously, in the uh, 1980s in terms of the Social Democratic Party mm-hmm. and what happened there and the fact that that led to um, the Conservatives winning a landslide victory twice in the late 80s. So it, there's precedent for it being very, very hard for small parties, especially in British politics, to break through. But what effect it has in terms of bringing a majority over to, towards a second referendum will be really, really interesting. It could have a huge impact what happens over here. Uh, absolutely. And one of the, the fascinating kind of tropes in that is that, that some uh, soft conservatives, some wet conservatives, as they call, uh, might be minded uh, to actually join this uh, new grouping. If that happens, we'll see a kind of a fundamental shift mm-hmm. in the kind of... Uh, and it's clearer. The, the divisions in Westminster have always been clearer than they have been over here in mm-hmm. terms of political ideology and direction. Uh, but we will definitely see a, a big marked shift in that. Speaking of political ideology and direction, uh, the party with uh, all of that and perhaps none of that is Fianna Fáil. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're having uh, their Ordesh this weekend. It's uh, it's kind of a national conference uh, season. I know that you're writing uh, a big piece, the definitive piece on mm. whether Fianna Fáil on Saturday, Fiac. No pressure there. Uh, but uh, what's your own uh, assessment of where Fianna Fáil are at? We spoke to, about it a little bit earlier, but uh, do you think the party's in a good place at the moment? Yeah, I was struck. I attended the... Um selection convention uh, for the Dublin Euro constituency on Sunday at which Barry Andrews was picked as the party candidate. And I was struck, I have to say, by the good atmosphere, the good vibe among uh, delegates and members at that. There was a real sense of activity in the room, of people being willing to work for this again, a buzz in the room, which you don't often get at those things. It was a fairly well-attended event. The room was pretty packed out of, I'd say, around 1,500, 1,600 people entitled to vote roughly 50% 
slightly more turnout vote, which is not a bad uh, turnout in Dublin on a Sunday. Um, so I think they're in a good position. Speaking to a few of their TDs, they seem to be content with where they are. None of them believe that this confidence supply deal will be seen through to the next calendar year. I think everybody believes that the election will be held in this calendar year. And they're happy to to see it true to its demise, if you like. They believe that the commitment that Michal Martin gave in the confidence supply agreement was that was honoured with the third budget last year and everything else is a bonus. So as far as they see it, they have carte blanche to do what they want in terms of bringing down the government once Brexit is resolved. But I think the reflection amongst, strikingly, Barry Andrews when he made his acceptance speech on Sunday evening, who, just bear in mind, he has been speaking to delegates for weeks now, canvassing their support. He was quite clearly saying this confidence bloody has to be revisited once Brexit is sorted. There's just no appetite to keep it going. I think that's broadly reflected across the party. The question is now when it happens. Most of the bending, I think, is on the autumn. Yeah, they'll have a good they'll have a good run in the European elections during the summer, uh, Jennifer. They had a really bad election in 2014. They had one MEP and then he left the party. Uh, mm. So they have zero at the moment. So they could pick up three, possibly four uh, MEP seats. They probably will pick up uh, four. Uh, do you think the party is uh, challenging uh, Fine Gael for hegemony at the moment? Or do you think the Fine Gael is still a little bit ahead? I think there's still a little bit ahead, but I really mean a little bit. And if you look at all the recent opinion polls, there's not a world of difference between the two of them. There's still not enough of a difference to say in any, with any great certainty that should there even be, let's say, for example, a snap election, that either one party would take a majority. In fact, the reality is we'd probably end up in the exact same position. I think we'll learn a lot from the local and European elections. Obviously, Fianna Fáil did quite well in the last local uh, elections and their hope is that they'd capitalise on that and make further gains. It'll be really interesting to see as well at the weekend. At the last Fianna Fáil Ordesh, one of the biggest issues was the issue of abortion. And, you know, they, the grassroots obviously were against a repeal of the Eighth uh, Amendment. Michal Martin came out and he had a totally different position and he went against his grassroots. So it'll be interesting to see if that is an issue, I doubt it will be because the referendum's been held and by and large, Michal Martin, if you look at it in terms of figures, he was on the right side of history. So, But it will be interesting to see the dynamic between him and his grassroots members, where his leadership is at. I don't think there's any question of him being in any trouble in terms of his leadership, but it'll be interesting to see that interaction, I think. I think it is very close and I think sometimes we forget how close it is in terms of Dodd's seats. Mm. Fine Gael now have 49 seats after Peter Fitzpatrick resigned the whip and as we've spoken about earlier he's going to vote against his former colleagues this evening in the, in the motion. Fine Gael have 45. Four seats is nothing in parliamentary terms and the gap between the two of them although I think a couple of the last polls have shown the gap about 3 or 4% there's a uniform view across the top of both parties that the gap is mid or sorry early 30s to late 20s mm. and that again is nothing. I don't think we'll see any major change until late in a campaign. And then there is this view in Fianna Fáil, they do believe that there is still a section of the population who will vote for them, but who won't declare that they're voting for them. Mm-hmm. And that they will outperform their opinion polls in a way that Sinn Féin underperforms from its opinion poll rating. So I do think it is very tight and it is going to be real shootout between the two of them at the next election. And the next few months are going to be fascinating yeah. in that regard because, you know, we're going to see the Leo Varadkar, Michal Martin, Jewel really step up. The two of them will be going at it because they know the task facing either of them is just to beat the other guy in terms of seat, uh, seat numbers, and that's the key issue. 
Uh, and both parties believe that both will make gains, that, that Fianna Fáil will have more seats after the election and Fine Gael will have more seats. I think they're both of them are looking at the, the corpses of independent can- candidates and, and smaller parties uh, to, to, to foment the, the gains. So we come back to that Maliki Clerken intro right at the end, Fiat, and I, I couldn't leave the studio uh, without asking you, um, is Dublin really uh, going to succeed in its drive for five? Absolutely, Harry. No doubt about it. Marissa McGlinchey is the author of a book, Unfinished Business, The Politics of Dissident Irish Republicanism. And it essentially looks at the dissident movement primarily uh, since 1997 uh, and the signing of the Good uh, Friday uh, Agreement. It's a fascinating book. It, uh, it focuses on oral history. It's not a critical history as such of the dissident Republican movement, but it uh, tries to get some form of insight into the strength of the dissident movement, uh, the various groups who are involved and the kind of thinking and rationale uh, that underlies uh, their continuing struggle. And it is a struggle in their view because the struggle uh, for Irish unity uh, continues. I think in the foreword, Marissa, you were saying that you yourself come from an SDLP uh, background and that uh, for your doctoral thesis in 2010, uh, you focused on that particular political party, which is a story uh, in itself. So how did the interest in the dissident movement uh, come about? Um, that's correct. I did do my PhD on the SDLP and there would be members of my family who would have been involved in the SDLP. Um, I always wanted to conduct this research. Um, I grew up in the political hotbed of West Belfast, where I still live today, and um, I saw it developing around me. And uh, I became very interested in former comrades who had turned so bitterly against one another. And um, as well as seeing it develop around me, I went along to Clonard Monastery around 2009 um, when Sinn Féin were holding a meeting there. And it was a public meeting to persuade people of the need to accept the PSA. And during that meeting, it was held in the actual church of Clonard Monastery and Sinn Féin representatives stood on the actual altar um, talking about the need to accept the PSNI. And um, people from the back uh, became very critical and were saying things like, you know, I didn't go to jail for this or my son didn't die for this. Um, and I became more and more interested in this very interesting group of people who, who had turned so bitterly against their former comrades. Okay, and I think some of them used the term traitor to describe Martin McGuinness and the Sinn Féin leadership who were on the altar in Clonard. And uh, paradoxically, uh, when three soldiers were killed in 2009, uh, traitor was the phrase that Martin McGuinness himself used uh, when describing uh, the distant Republican movement. So each of them uh, were at at daggers drawn, essentially, uh, metaphorically, if not literally, uh, anymore uh, with each other. So perhaps you could give me an overview of dissident Republican. I mean, it's become a phrase that we use, uh, perhaps a slightly in a throwaway thing. One of the arguments you make uh, throughout the book is uh, that trying to describe dissident Republicans is a more complex, a more nuanced and a more subtle exercise. But there are lots of them uh, in terms of groups. Uh, there have been lots of splits and they've had really difficulty uh, in some instances in trying to uh, uh, explain uh, the, the why and wherefore of why they uh, still exist. So perhaps you could give me an overview 
of the dissident movement, uh, where, where it's come from and its present uh, strength? Uh, yes, well, you're correct. I mean, um, one of the things that I have been asked quite a lot about is why I have the word dissident in inverted commas on the, the cover of the book. Um, and the reason that I tend not to use the word dissident, um, and I prefer phrases like radical Republicans or revolutionary Republicans, um, well, it's firstly because many of those involved, and in fact, many of my interviewees were active within republicanism or the Republican movement, um, even prior to the formation of the provisionals in 69. Um, so there's that living link and also if you stood at commemorations throughout the country um, today uh, of these radical groups and hear their message they're articulating the same Republican position that you would have heard at Sinn Féin commemorations in the 70s or 80s and so I don't find the word dissident particularly helpful Uh, but you're right that it does encompass a wide spectrum uh, of people involved and there are a wide number of groups and we can really explain that for a a variety of reasons but probably the most prominent is that there were various breaking points where people broke away from the provisional movement. So we can really chart um, the beginning or the emergence of modern day so-called dissident republicanism to 1986 and the formation of Republican Sinn Féin. Um, And it is a wide spectrum, which includes a significant body of independents as well. And people like Tommy McCurney, Anthony McIntyre um, and various others uh, who would come under that category as well, but aren't a member of any groups. And then finally, there's a wide variety of opinions on the armed campaign at present. So the word dissident Republican has become synonymous with anti-peace process when in fact there's a wide spectrum of views on that and many of the people I interviewed actually wouldn't support armed actions today. Okay, and you used the phrases uh, revolutionary Republicans and also radical Republicans. I suppose the Republican Sinn Féin that movement would would fit into the revolutionary mode, uh, whereas the likes of the 32 County Sovereignty Committee, uh, IRAGI and some other groups such as CIRA, which has emerged since 2016, uh, would fall into the latter category. Yes, yes. And Siru was an interesting um, emergence because um, it was unsurprising when it was announced that a new party had been formed because there were a number of people who I had interviewed for the book who were then independent um, and there was a great sense of isolation from any form of base. So we saw the coming together of various prominent independent Republicans um, to form the Siri organisation and in fact when we look at the membership of their first Ardesh and the top table there were several people there who would have been um, involved in Sinn Féin or the provisional movement. Okay now you list the organisations and there are quite a few of them there's the 32 County Sovereignty Committee uh, which has links to the real IRA uh, there's Republican Sinn Féin that, that came really after the 1997 Good Friday Agreement that was formed n- around 1997-1998 uh, the uh, Republican Sinn Féin uh, came as a result of the split in 1986 that would have been Rory O'Brody Dahi O'Connell uh, 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 et al walking out of the Sinn Féin Ordesh and their uh, military uh, uh, wing uh, if I'm correct to describe in that way is the continuity uh, IRA and then you get lots of kind of small uh, uh, organisations, uh, some of which have formed, some of which have uh, uh, not lasted. Uh, I think the ORNU is one that you refer to, uh, which was formed and no longer lasts. But you have IRAGI, you have SIRA, uh, uh, you have uh, various 1916 committees and very various others uh, which uh, would be uh, socialist and Trotskyist in terms of, of intent. There's just quite a lot of them, isn't there? Uh, yes, there are a lot, and that's why it took um, such a long time to research and to um, really get to grips with this, because uh, my key aim with this book was to really 
really delve into the psyche of radical republicanism and to really bring out their views through their own words. Um, and so I've tried to do that through their direct quotes throughout the book, but as well as the various groups that you've referred to there. And um, there's also a very interesting body of independence. And uh, they're particularly interesting because they remained with Sinn Féin or the provisional movement through a variety of ideological changes um, and yet departed in the more recent period. And so in the book, I try to explore why why they would stay through such ideological changes to then depart in recent times. Okay, and some of those would be against any uh, continuing violence or armed struggle. I think Anthony McIntyre is somebody that you have uh, Mm -hmm. that you have interviewed extensively throughout the course of the book and he would fit into that uh, bracket. Perhaps you could tell me a little bit, Marissa, about your modus operandi, how you approached uh, the book. It's an oral history uh, as opposed to a critical history and you defend it uh, in the way that uh, perhaps Richard English did in his book on the IRA that is important uh, irrespective of what you think or what you believe or what your views are that you gain an understanding of how these uh, organisations uh, take. And we'll come back to that perhaps in a little while. Uh, but you also, because it was an oral history, it relied on interviews. And I think that you interviewed quite a number of people uh, in the end. So perhaps you could describe how you went about the task. Uh, yes, that's correct. I interviewed 90. Um, and in fact, uh, in the aftermath of the Boston College project, many people speculated that <clears throat> I wouldn't, in fact, um, you know, get anyone to talk for this. Um, but I did have to stop at 90 because there were so many people willing to be interviewed. Um, I approached the various organisations. I went through the formal channels, such as their offices here in Belfast or Dublin. Um, and I also approached individuals um, who I would know or know of. And it snowballed from there. And I attended various um, seminars that they were holding or Ardeshna um, or various Republican commemorations throughout Ireland. And I found that was very helpful um, in establishing contacts. And it took a long time to build up trust as well, and um, particularly for spokespersons for the for the armed groups. Um, and I conducted some interviews there. I also went into McGabry Prison and I interviewed some of the uh, current prisoners in there and I what I did there is actually their families gave up some of their visits for me to go in and conduct my research. Okay and um, in the course of it we get an insight into the thinking of many of of the organisations and you you describe uh, the mainstream view of of dissidents and there is an argument you make which is valid uh, that the reality is more complex. But having read the book, I think that many of the mainstream uh, views uh, are kind of reinforced by some of the things that people say during the course of the book, that they're unrepresentative, that they're obdurate, that they're hardline, uh, that they have no electoral uh, mandate. And in some cases, you kind of think that, uh, you know, that some of the people uh, um, are one step removed uh, from uh, the reality of, of life. One of the quotes uh, that struck me was one that was given by Phil O'Donoghue about uh, probably the most egregious act that was done by any distant Republican group, which was the Oma bomb uh, in, in 1998. And uh, he talked about it uh, afterwards um, and he said there were some very angry meetings. It should never have happened. Uh, there are some who would, have call, who would call it a war crime, a thoughtless act. And then he goes on to say, or maybe it was deliberate. I am of the opinion that it was deliberate. And the reason I say that is this house was raided about four or five hours before the actual bomb went. So they had pre-knowledge of the bomb. I strongly believe that they deliberately allowed the bomb uh, to go off. And to me, that seems to be a, a banal 
conspiracy uh, theory uh, and has no basis in reality and is something that perhaps he and some of his comrades might use as a kind of consolation uh, uh, to uh, allay uh, whatever guilt they might feel uh, because of the nature of the uh, Oma bomb. And I mean, that's one of the, the... Difficulties, the tricky things with oral history is that you're not really criticising it or challenging these views. You're allowing people uh, to speak. And it kind of falls to Danny Morrison, and I thought I'd never say this, uh, to be the voice of reason uh, throughout the course of the book. He's the kind of person who's providing the corrective uh, to some of the narrative that's coming out of uh, uh, dissident uh, mouths. So do you think that's that they, they, the mainstream view, I know that uh, there are exceptions and there are nuances, but there is lots of validity to the mainstream views and uh, the the distant groups do uh, contain people who have very wonky thinking, to put it at its mildest. It is a wide spectrum, as I said, and it includes all sorts of people and views. I interviewed Danny because um, I thought it was really important for the book to have the counter argument or the mainstream argument throughout. Um, and Danny kindly gave up a lot of time um, for several interviews over several several days um, to provide that counter argument. And um, I think that, you know, the realistic assessment is that Sinn Féin does hold a monopoly on the nationalist communities and votes here. Um, Interestingly, many of the people you're referring to, they don't seek their mandate at the polls. So they don't seek an electoral mandate. So there are um, elected councillors. um, Barry Monteith topped the poll in Mid-Ulster, Gary Donnelly and Derry and various others. Um, But Sinn Féin does hold a monopoly, a monopoly of um you know of support and um, so i think that that needs to be stated um I mean, we saw Siru come out in 2016 and actually call on people to um, not participate in the elections because they felt that if they did, um, they would be in some way legitimising um, the partitionist instit- institutions which they seek uh, to get rid of or to overthrow. And so there is a disconnect and there is a lack of a coherent analysis for a way forward. So if, if you, you, you interviewed 90... Um, do you, do, I mean, let's look at the distant groups. I mean, how many people, in your estimation, belong to uh, to these uh, Republican uh, groups uh, and organisations and support them, uh, in your view? I know that you quoted Jonathan Tong saying mm-hmm. that a, a survey said that they, they, they might attract 14% or 14% of the nationalist community and might be sympathetic uh, to some of the views that are put forward to them. I think there was another survey uh, that, that might, might have put it at somewhat lower... Uh, than that. But the reality is um, that they have really very small uh, electoral uh, validity. Uh, Republican Sinn Féin have won a councillor uh, in, in, in the 26 counties, Tommaso Curran, uh, who's in Connemara. And I'm from Galway myself, and I'd say that most people who vote for Tommaso Curran vote for him because he's Tommaso Curran rather than because he's a representative of Republican Sinn Féin. And you talked about three uh, representatives in the north, but I think all of them stood as independents uh, mm-hmm. uh, rather than on a particular uh, uh, ticket. And I mean, Jonathan Tong actually uh, also says that uh, even by previous standards, uh, the distant IRAs seem particularly bereft of uh, support. Uh, the uh, groups themselves acknowledge uh, that the lack of, of any uh, popular support is a difficulty for them. So um, just in terms of trying to trying to put your finger on, you know, the, 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 the size, how many supporters, how many members and what kind of popular support that they might command. Is that a difficult thing to do, Marissa? 
It's a really difficult thing to do. Um, it's very difficult to gauge. You can look at attendance at commemorations or you can look at uh, attendance at Ardeshna um, or, or as I mentioned and, and you mentioned there, the survey that was undertaken by Jonathan Tong in 2010 and that, that said that 14% of those within the survey who identified as nationalist could see some sympathy as to why the rail and continuity IRAs are doing what they're doing. But, um, you know, I think that the base know that the support isn't there. Um, and as I alluded to earlier, you know, um, in terms of the wide spectrum that is there, you know, it, there is a minority support for what's termed dissident republicanism. But even within that base, um, you know, support for armed actions at present would would also be minority, even within what we would term the dissident republican base. OK. And um, are, are any of them active uh, at present? Um, uh, are, are, are we experiencing a, a lull in activity or, or a ceasefire or, or a truce, as it were? Um, well, they are active. When you look at PSNI figures, you can see um, sustained activity, but very low level and occasional. Um, when you look at it, you can see pockets of activity such as um, Derry, Lurgan and Belfast. Um, and also there are currently about 48 prisoners, Republican prisoners in Ireland at present, um, which is often overlooked by people that there are um, still current prisoners. Um, but it's low level and occasional. And I think what we saw in Derry um, a few weeks ago was really the demo demonstration that the ability is still there um, if they want to use it. Okay. Now, they have used um, um, historical determinism, you know, the, the, the historical argument you talk about, the, the same rhetoric being used as was used in the 70s and possibly that was used in 1916 and going right back to, to Wolf Tone in 1798, the, the right of uh, Ireland to its own sovereignty and to self-determination. And for some of the groups, that trumps uh, everything uh, uh, else. But um, in a sense, w when you listen to some of what is said by the representative of, of these organisations, to me, some of it does sound to be kind of inherently uh, democratic. The 32, so the 32 County Sovereignty Committee uh, also uh, uh, said that, um, you know, it, it justified why it doesn't stand for election uh, on these grounds. Uh, we wouldn't be foolish enough to go forward as an election group because right now we would be battered into the ground and give our enemies all the ammunition they want. We have no intention of ever becoming a political party. Now, an awful lot of people have done their damnedest to get the name changed to go into politics, uh, but these people are working to somebody else's uh, uh, agenda. And uh, Danny Morrison responded to that type of comment by saying, I I've always stood on the Sinn Féin ticket so why wouldn't they stand on a 32-county sovereignty movement ticket? Why? Because they would be afraid of a poor vote or that distant activity would hurt their vote. So they can't even publicly stand for what they stand for. And isn't that a legitimate uh, a view that they, they, they don't really have a legitimacy, that the historical argument in terms of sovereignty about uh, uh, revolutionary politics is kind of meaningless uh, unless there is some form of popular support for it. And the evidence throughout the book is that that just does not exist at present. I think you're right about it being historically deterministic. Um, and I think that comes out through all the interviews um, and even the um, keenness to say that, you know, an electoral mandate, you know, legitimacy is not sought at the polls. Um, you know, I think it's 
quite important to understand that they locate, you know, you refer to a lull there. Well, that's how they would refer to the current. Um, they would refer to this as one phase in the long tra trajectory of the Irish Republican campaign and movement. Um, they are realistic that the support isn't there, um, but they will continue to emphasise that they're not populist. So that's a current thread that you would see throughout their arguments. And they would continue to talk about 1916 and, and draw legitimacy um, back to the proclamation and, and historically deterministic and we've seen uh, in recent days people connecting Brexit um, with it but we saw you know the um, the Derry Journal carried a statement from the new IRA who undertook that attack in Derry and in the statement um, on the 29th of January they quite in um, interestingly referred to Brexit and they said you know all this talk of hard borders or soft borders um, is really irrelevant to us that they are articulating the traditional Republican message. OK, and I think um, some uh, senior members of Republican Sinn Féin have, have said that Brexit might provide an mm -hmm. opportunity uh, for such groups to, to uh, gain uh, uh, some modicum of uh, political uh, support. Danny Morrison actually asked you um, at the start, it's quoted at the start of one of the chapters, and he kind of directly uh, addressed you, as far as I can see. He said, there's an onus on you uh, to ask them what the struggle is. Uh, did you get to the bottom of that in the end, Marissa? Uh, yes, I did. And I, as I said, I interviewed spokespersons um, after several years of building up trust. And I interviewed spokespersons for the continuity and real IRAs. And um, it, the continuity spokespeople in North Armagh, uh, they again re-articulated the traditional Republican um, message. And they said, you know, did Tom Williams have an electoral mandate? And they quoted various others. So again, um, I mean, even the name, the continuity IRA, this real emphasis on, um, on drawing a, a lineage back throughout Republican history. Um, and I did ask about morality and the morality of actions. And there are a few quotes in the book which refers to that as well. There's a particularly interesting one from Brendan Madden, um, if you picked up on who has, has since died, saying that, you know, he wouldn't hurt a fly on the street. Um, but when a British soldier has a uniform on in his country, he viewed that as different. He, indeed, he was a Republican from Galway and I actually didn't, I'm from Galway myself and I wasn't aware of his existence until I knew Tomaso Curry very well, but I wasn't aware of his existence uh, until I read uh, your book over the past uh, few days. One of the things that, that I found to be a little surprising, Marissa, was the, that uh, the INLA and the IPLO were not included uh, in the book. Um, I, I wonder why that was. Is did they are, are they in a different category or did they predate the time span in which uh, this book focused on? Well, it's an interesting question. And um, it really, I felt that they belong in a different category. I mean, when you look at what is termed dissident republicanism, you're really looking at people who were a member of the provisional movement, um, formerly or Sinn Féin. And so, you know, when we collectively look at, the, at what's termed dissidents, that's really what we're looking at. So I took that decision not to include those organisations because I didn't think they specifically fitted under that category. But I did interview members of the Republican Socialist Movement here in Belfast. The book uh, is available in all uh, good bookshops and presumably online and is published by Manchester University Press. Dr. Marissa McGlinchey from West Belfast, but I think attached to the University of Coventry now. Thank you so much indeed. Oh, thank you. So that's it for this week's edition. Don't forget that we have a special podcast coming from this weekend's Fianna Fáil or Esh in Dublin. Please listen out for it. In the meantime, thanks to all this week's guests and to producer Jennifer Ryan. <laughs>